Welcome one and all to a new episode of my RPG podcast. Today's episode is with Eugene Marshall of the Arcanus Press. And in this uh, episode, we talked to Eugene about his released product, Ancestry and Culture, as well as some of the other things he's currently working on with Arcanus Press, and also the current state of RPG, tabletop RPG, uh, in regards to inclusivity and the kind of depictions of earlier editions and the racial conflicts and things that come up with that as well. Um, this is a very insightful conversation, especially considering Eugene's an academic uh, philosophy professor. So he's very intelligent, very smart, and very well put together. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Welcome, one and all, to a new episode of My RPG Podcast. Today's guest is Eugene from Arcanist Press. Eugene, will you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Eugene Marshall from Arcanist Press. Yes, Eugene is a RPG content creator amongst many things in his uh, personal life, and I'm actually one of the people who followed and has purchased some of his content, but we'll get to that in just one second, because Eugene, I want to know, what's your introduction into RPGs? Well, uh, my introduction happened in about 1982, <clears throat> 1983, with the cartoon, uh, actually. And I asked my parents for the uh, for Dungeons & Dragons, and they got me the Menser edition with the Larry Elmore art red box basic D&D set. And I played that for a few years and then transitioned to other games, superhero games in particular. I uh, played all the way up through 3rd edition, lots of White Wolf, uh, World of Darkness games. Took a break uh, in the 2000s, went to grad school, got married, had kids, and came back with 5th edition uh, and have since branched out to all kinds of stuff. So you have a, a you have a very actually kind of storied background in RPGs. Was there always that part of you that was interested in role-playing or acting and playing pretend? Oh, absolutely. I mean, before I knew what role-playing games were, I was role-playing. And, you know, I started when I was, I don't know, 10 uh but or nine or so and throughout that time i was playing role-playing games of many sorts video games and when i wasn't playing those years in grad school and with young children i just read the books right and i read comics and i played role-playing games on video games so i was always in that headspace i've always been kind of a fantasy and science fiction kind of uh fan and what were your early games like? I mean, are you heavy on the RP and the world building, or did you like to loot and kill uh, and kind of go through dungeons? What was it like? Well, the early D&D stuff was pretty dungeon crawly, but that was in part, of course, because of the content available. I mean, I, I do say, though, that I really did enjoy in the old games, not just the dungeon crawls where you would... Uh, you know, kill the monsters. I really like the exploration kind of pillar. So one of my very favorites is White Plume Mountain uh, because you're moving through this just bizarre space full of kind of, it's like a funhouse dungeon, right? Uh, through all, with all of these unusual rooms and traps and puzzles. And I thought that was really just super exciting. Um, I mean, there was a period in my, in the mid eighties where I was playing uh, uh, superhero games and I would play over the phone with my cousin. So no, I mean, we barely rolled dice. So sometimes it was very, very narrative as well. Over the phone, I wonder how you resolved any sort of contested uh, conflicts and, and things like that. He was uh, the GM. And so he did all the rolling. And for all I know, he was telling the truth, but he created a compelling story that way. Yeah, that's, that's that sounds like a very old school way to do it. I know very few people nowadays who are... I, I, th I think the art the physical art or act sorry for english the physical act of um rolling dice has something that's uh is kind of innately rewarding or you know at the same time defeating if you roll really really badly but yeah there was a great kind of old way of doing it to where i know many people who started early like yourself also had gms i would kind of just tell them what happened and would roll the dice and it was left uh, up obviously up to the uh 
up to the GM as to what the real dice roll was not, which is interesting because uh, as, as somebody who's GM'd myself and DM myself, I always do get the question about, well, do you always you know play it as the dice rolls or do you fudge it a little bit for cinematic purposes? And in a situation like that, I mean, you have all the control because nobody knows what their roles are, right? Oh, absolutely. And it's funny because that was the way that many of us played you know, in the early to mid 80s. But by the time I got into the 90s, what a lot of GMs and DMs were doing is they would roll, they had a screen, they would roll behind the screen some of the time, but if it was a momentous roll or they thought it would be appropriate, they would roll out in front of people. But nowadays, I see that there's lots of GMs and DMs, myself included, uh, who just roll everything in front of the players. And I trust myself and my players, or if I'm playing in a game where somebody else is DMing or GMing, I trust them enough to make the roles make sense to tell a story that's interesting. I I, I, uh, I think that it really does depend, though, because each table has to have its own kind of social contract, you know, an agreement or an understanding, maybe set up in a session zero about what kind of game you're playing, right? Are you playing a super deadly dungeon crawl or are you playing a more narrative game where, you know, it would be really disappointing and frustrating for the character you've worked you know for so long on their backstory to die from a an, a critical hit errant goblin arrow uh you know randomly uh, they might not think that's the kind of game they want to play and i think there's room in the hobby for all those different sorts of approaches yeah i mean it's it's a very diverse kind of landscape now with the way we play and uh, i do want to actually mention because you did start so long ago if it's something you can answer, uh, I'll give you a little uh, time if you want to. What has been your favorite system now through all the ones that you've played? Uh, if you need a little vamp time, I can do that for you too. Favorite system. Or addition. Well, if, if, if maybe you just have a particular addition of one type of system you like. So it's hard for me to answer this question because for me, what I do role playing games for is the experience, the table experience. And it might be that some games are actually better written, better mechanical uh, experiences than others. But if I don't have the opportunity to play with people at a table, then I can't call it uh, my favorite game. Uh, so for that reason, I'll have to say Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition, even though it's not perfect. Uh, I myself issued have released products trying to, address things I think are shortcomings of the system. It's my favorite simply because it's given me the most joy. I think it is, in fact, mechanically speaking, the best system uh, that D&D or Wizards of the Coast or TSR has put out. Uh, so it's my favorite edition of Dungeons & Dragons. If I am to say something, I don't know, it's just it's apples and oranges sort of thing. I, I love Powered by the Apocalypse games because of the way they can make me feel when I'm playing them, uh, the way they can allow me to explore what it means to be human and relationships in a way that Dungeons and Dragons just struggles with a little bit more. So, I mean, if I had to pick those two, I, you know, I'd say those two are probably my favorite. I think it's interesting. Something you've kind of brought up now multiple times is the fact that you, your focus on, on the experience. So your focus on what's happening at the table, regardless of, or not regardless of, but over mechanics or the technical and analytical aspect of it. Is is that ultimately your end goal here is just to feed the, 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 the group space and the environment and the vibe of what's happening at the table? Um, so yes and no. I will. I am a philosophy professor by day. Uh, and so I will do a philosophy professor thing and just challenge the way you framed your question. I don't think. <laughs> oh, we, 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 we should talk uh, economics too, because the number one thing I tell people, uh, my profession was economics. Uh, number one thing I tell people is, you know, a true econo economist, if you ever ask them a, a serious question about the state of economies and things like that, and they look at you and go, well, it depends. That's how you know you're talking to an economist. Absolutely. Yeah. It depends what you mean by those things is usually whether the philosopher is going to ask like a definitional question or they're going to say, well, that's a false dichotomy. And I think that's what's happening here because I don't think I have to choose between experience and mechanics uh, uh, or story and mechanics. Lots of times there will be, you know, uh, categories of gamer. Are you a simulationist or are you a, you know, a narrativist and all these sorts of things. I think a lot of that is questionable because, Yes, I suppose you can refer to those as emphases that are a little bit different, but I think that the narrative and indeed the table experience are in part created by the mechanics. What I'm interested in doing is designing and experiencing and playing mechanics that facilitate narrative. That's why I play role-playing games. If I'm just interested in narrative, I will write a novel, I will uh, uh, participate in 
act in a in a theater production production. If I'm just interested in mechanics, I'll become an engineer. I'm a role playing game player. That means I want the mechanics to create the narrative experience. Right? It's a game, but it's also role playing. Yes, and in that in that same sense, when we look at a lot of the earliest editions uh, came out, the backbone of what they were based on was the origin. It was a lot of war gaming, where, like you mentioned, those early editions of you know D and D and early RPGs was a lot of you know hack and slashy and, and looty and stuff like that. But now, I mean, especially considering you being a philosopher, we can look back at those times and be like. Maybe there were some things about the settings that we were creating or we were playing in that weren't exactly socially acceptable. Or maybe the depictions or the actions or the ultimate end goals were a little bit. Um, I don't want to say. I don't want to say um, primitive because you know things that are dealt with in those games are still dealt with today. But I, I still want to say is are are, are a little bit uh, immature in comparison to the very mature and gray world that we live in now. Um, so I, how does one now looking back at that, cause there's a big movement I've noticed in the RPG sphere recently, and you guys are actually creating product kind of addressing one of the issues with RPGs, especially the earlier editions, kind of calling out the racist or, um, bigoted or um, prejudiced kind of language and thoughts and tropes that were employed in the earliest games. While some people will then, you know, on the opposite side, and again, everything's not uh, binary, but some people on the opposite side will say like, well, that was a product of its time, or it was, you know, harmless, meaningless fun. We were kids. We didn't really think too deeply about it. So how do we, how do we sit with that? How do we rectify that we really uh, enjoy those additions while at the same time realizing maybe it was sexist or racist or things like that? Well, I think that, so I'm, I am a philosopher and uh, the way I take my attitude towards these things don't often fit well in a tweet, for example. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think that, I think it would be overly simplistic and problematically reductionist to say there's uh, racist content in Dungeons and Dragons, for, uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, first edition, right? Because they put out Oriental Adventures, right? Or there is bioessentialism in the way they talk about race. Okay, those things can be true, and we can critique those things while still enjoying Dungeons and Dragons and still loving it and still wanting to play it. Uh, similarly, I can enjoy uh, a movie despite not liking one uh, element of it or one theme or one scene. I can like a person and, and recognize that they have flaws and shortcomings as, that they need to work on. Uh, so that's the attitude I take towards Dungeons and Dragons is this is a thing that I love. But it needs to be improved. It needs to work. And, you know, I feel that way, incidentally, though this is a bit off topic, about politics too, right? I think that one can have positive feelings towards a community or a nation or a people um, while also taking a critical stance and saying, like, here are the ways we really ought to work to improve the situation, right? I think that that's consistent. So that's my attitude towards Dungeons and Dragons. I think that I, a lot of people on Twitter will say either, you know, if you call it, call out a flaw, you are a hater and, you know, I'm going to attack you. And then other people that's, they think that because there's a flaw, it's somehow wrong to uh, also enjoy it. I mean, it, it, it really does uh, unfortunately often collapse into this kind of factional simplistic partisanship. Uh, but my view is absolutely there's flaws. Absolutely. Oriental adventures is, is racist or you know, anti-Asian or uh, use, uses harmful tropes. It does. Uh, and I know that because that's what the Asian uh, members of our community say, and they would be best positioned to know that. Um, but I'm not quitting D&D, and neither are they. That's the thing that people don't quite get, you know, like Daniel Kwan and Asians represent. They, you know, uh, very often they uh, are still enjoying and, and playing D&D. Uh, so uh, I think that's a reasonable position to hold, and that's uh, why I put out a product to try to address a problem I saw in the game Uh because I want to make the game better for everybody. I want to improve the hobby because I love it. And that's a seamless segue there. Well done uh, by, by you, Eugene, because I was going to bring up, you saw this, you noticed this kind of uh, issue happening. And what's the kind of uh, inciting incident, the call to action, if I may use those terms, for you to be like, you know what, I'll do it myself. I'll fix it. If I can come up with more also superhero references and Easter eggs, I'll keep vamping. But what was the thing that propelled you to do it? Well, I, I was listening to uh, members of our community that most of them, you know, people of color and marginalized identities who were saying that these were things that bothered them, right? I had read an article or a blog post by N.K. Jemison, the great science fiction author, um, called The Unbearable Baggage of Orking. 
And she wrote that, I think, maybe seven or eight years ago. And since then, I would occasionally see a critique, a pro somebody pointing out a way in which elements of Dungeons & Dragons were bothered them, right? So uh, James Mendez Hodes has got a series of essays on his blog, uh, uh, Graham Barber. Uh, Tristan Tarwater had a piece on D&D uh, uh, Beyond last summer. And so they were drawing my attention to the, the, the fact that they thought this was a bit problematic. And it was the kind of thing that once it was pointed out to me, it was hard for me not to see, right? Uh, and I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. Specifically, it's the racial essentialism. And let me just define that and then talk about how that motivated me. Um, so racial essentialism is the view that people, individuals, get their traits, their personality, their abilities, um, not just from their environment, their learning, upbringing, and not just from their individual genetics, but from some sort of membership in a race category, right? So that would be to look at somebody who is smart and say they're not smart because they were, went to a good school and they're not even smart because they have smart parents. They're smart because they're black or white or Asian. That's racial essentialism. And the problem is that that's actually the way that D&D handles race. Uh, elves are, you know, a high elf has a plus one to intelligence in, and a gnome has plus two and a, an orc has minus two, right? Why? Not because of their parents or how they're brought up, not because uh, of anything that would make sense in the real world, but because they're just a member of this class. Now, in the real world, that's really problematic to talk about. You're good because you're black or you're white. You're good at sports or at math because of your race, not because of anything about you in particular. That's racial essentialism. It often underlies racism in the real world, and it bothers people when they encounter it in the real world. So when those people who are already getting harmed by it in the real world encounter it in their games, they notice at least that's what they report, often noticing. And they say that this makes it harder for them to enjoy the game, uh, that it is uh, some that sometimes it's uh, bothersome or you know kind of off-putting. And yes, of course, we're just talking about orcs and elves are not real, that, but it does still have this effect on the players. And if, in fact, it's the case that some of these were initially created by uh, some of the greats of our hobby as kind of stand-ins for, you know, Attila the Hun or for black people or whoever, then yeah, that also kind of adds to the distaste of it. Uh, but really my issue is people weren't able to have the good experience at the table because of a mechanical issue. They were assigning, for example, to the half-orc, savage attacks and the menacing trait. The half-orc, that means that if you're a half-orc, you are savage and menacing, not because of who you are, but because you're a member of a racial category. And that that's kind of weird to encounter in our games when you think about it because it's not cool to encounter it in the real world and so they pointed that out i saw it last summer and fall i thought oh that's kind of yeah that's that's not cool so i'm thinking for my home games i try and write up a rule because what i wanted to be able to do was separate that out and i thought the best way to do it would be to take the traits that are essentialist problematically essentialist like being smart or dumb and or violent or savage or menacing and take them out of biology and put them into where they belong you know like your upbringing your culture and i realized that that would also allow you to have like the aragorn sort of character where it's a human raised by elves and thus has slightly different abilities uh and so i thought okay i'll write this out and just see what it looks like i did i showed it to a couple people and they said oh this is awesome this is, you should share this and i thought okay, what should I do with it? I, you know, I, I had been writing some role-playing game content for a company called Sigil Entertainment. Uh, and they did mostly Savage Worlds content. Uh, we did a couple of Kickstarters with them. So it's like I, I had a kind of some experience in the game industry, uh, but I had not published anything under my kind of my own uh, masthead, my own, my own imprint. Uh, and then Kickstarter has their zine quest uh, promotion in February where they invite people to do a two-week Kickstarter for a zine, a kind of DIY, low budget, often black and white, you know, short little five by eight sized book, booklet. And so I did it for that. And it just really blew up. I set a $300 goal because I just wanted to buy a single piece of cover art. And it hit, a, hit that in 40 minutes. And so I ended up getting 917 backers after two weeks, um, you know, three, whatever, 3000% funded. So I said, oh my, there's a, there's a market here. So I worked on it and got it out in June, and then it just kind of it took off from there. Uh, so I really have to thank, though, to wrap back to the beginning, you know, those creators of color who pointed it out and made it clear. I, I think of myself as just standing on their shoulders. All I did was come up with a mechanical insight 
to try and address a problem that they've long been calling out. So that's kind of how it evolved. And I, I think it's great that you made, obviously, the point to call out the members of the community who've already been there and have been living through this and have been talking about it. And also the fact that, like Asians represent, how they all at the same time still love this hobby, still love this game. And they don't come from a let's raise it you know, uh, to the ground and, and burn it all down. They come from a, hey, guys, we can do this better. Hey guys, we can improve this. If this is going to be an officially, you know, licensed product that we're going to public publicly, you know, advertise and put onto, you know, store shelves or internet web pages, we should be able to be very critical uh, about the kind of depictions or the um, ways in which it, it it sells itself. And we never wanted to take away. And I, you know, I'm I'm, not, I'm saying this as the position of these people, which I think is close to what they're saying is they never want to take away this uh, this game, this hobby from people. They just want to make it better, more inclusive. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it's it's really in my mind a kind of reflection of what we've seen in other kind of areas of culture, comics and video games where marginalized people ask, uh, you know, to be a more represented in the content that they're consuming and uh, also ideally in the staff of the, those creating that content. I mean, I think it's a perfectly reasonable request. I mean, they're a market. They ought to be served just as much as any other market. And it's always a bit disheartening to see people kind of have a knee-jerk reaction as though... So one thing that's happened quite a bit with my product is people have interpreted me saying, hey, there is racial, racial essentialism in D&D. Hey, it puts it, you know, it bothers some people and here is a way to remove it. They've interpreted that as me saying, hey, you who enjoys D&D, you're racist. Hey, Jeremy Crawford, who created the fifth edition rules, he's racist. I'm not saying any of those things, Right. As I said, you can have the view that this is a, a thing that we love together, and I've loved it for longer than most of those internet trolls have been alive, I assure you, uh, but uh, we can also try and make it better, and I think that's what most of those creators that we hear from, that I'm indebted to, uh, that's their stance too. And I know you mentioned this kind of in passing, but you already had a background in creating content, RPG content. Well, when did you start kind of creating RPG content in a professional or semi-professional uh, manner? Because uh, you are an academic. We we know you mentioned that a little bit earlier. Was this always something in the background that you've been doing from your own games and then decided like, hey, let me try my hand at that? Yeah, it was kind of happened by accident. I had been about 2014. I came back to D and D and and was playing on Roll Twenty, and I wanted. To, I realized that I had missed 15 years of really role playing game renaissance. I missed the whole Forge era and this explosion of cool new indie games, and so I uh, started playing a lot more games and uh, finding joining groups, and ended up joining a group to play, go back. Not a new game, but one of my old favorites to go back and play Vampire the Masquerade. 20th anniversary edition and i met a guy named aaron acevedo in that group that i was playing with and you know the game went on for a year or so and then eventually petered out as they do and he owns a company called sigil entertainment and he is the art director uh and basically in charge of production for pinnacle entertainment and uh so he has been in charge of savage worlds deadlands uh, he's also doing Torg Eternity and now Seventh Sea for John Wick over at Chaosium. So very, and he's been in the industry for like 25 years. So he uh, was one of the players, and he decided to make a, a title that took the NPC or the PCs from our vampire game, and then and some more, and made a little just a collection of NPCs that he was going to put on Drive Through RPG, or specifically the Storyteller's Vault. He invited me just to write up mine, my character. And so I did and submitted it to him. And he's like, you're the only person who got this to me by the deadline. Can you do another one? So I did. Oh, that's that's funny then, that you were the only one to yeah. do that. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you know, people just because somebody plays the game and somebody is a homebrew DM or doesn't mean you can hit a deadline. You know, it doesn't mean that you can produce content. One of the things that's always kind of surprised me. And it's one of the ways I've discovered that I'm weird apparently compared to many other people is when I'm talking to other people about games, they'll say like, Oh, I'm going to try and publish this, my setting or whatever. And I say, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I've published a couple settings. You know what? Tell me about it. And then they reveal that they've been working on it for 20 years or 10 years or five years. It's like, I've never worked on anything for like remotely that long. And maybe that's my bad. And maybe I'm too flighty and I move on too quickly, but you know, the settings I've put out, which are 
two or three with Savage Sign and 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 Sigil Entertainment, the Savage World stuff. You know, I worked on them for a few months. I, that was the deadline, so I hit the deadline. And because of that, he invited me to keep writing because apparently that's a valuable resource to be able to produce decent content. And it really was training I got from academia. So I would be force myself to sit down and write a journal article because this was my summer. I had three months. I had to get it done before I went back to teach. And if I didn't do get it done and get it out and get it published, in other words, make it good, I wouldn't get tenure and I wouldn't be able to provide for my family. So I was very motivated and doing that, forcing myself through that for 20 years uh, made me be able to sit my butt in a chair and write when it was time. And that's the most valuable trait in being a content producer. Uh, so it translated very well. And I managed to write, ended up writing a bunch for him. I wrote like half of those two Kickstarters, the Savage Sign Kickstarters that are 150 page like anthologies of Savage Worlds content. Then we started branching out into D&D. And then I started doing it myself with my uh, spouse. Uh, in Arcanist Press. And we've got three titles out now and, uh, well, five if you count the player the character sheets and pre-gens. And then we've got five more on DMs Guild and we've got about four more in the pipeline. And that's just in the past three months. That's a crazy amount of content. And I kind of did want to dig into this because you did bring it up. I find for a lot of people, and I've played with people who've had games, you know, that they've been playing in their homebrew worlds for 20 years as, as well. And they've, they've mentioned that. I think the thing that helped you a lot is like you mentioned your time in academia and kind of having that mentality of go, 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 go. For a lot of people, they don't know where to start. However, we are, like you mentioned, in a tabletop renaissance. And now with the advent of the internet and Kickstarters and Patreons and GoFundMes, this is probably the bet one of the best times ever to be an independent starting something because all you need is not even the product finish, you need just the idea, a great pitch or a great, you know, selling point or a great campaign. And then you can get the funding to then make it a reality. I think a lot of people are just that first step, you know, that's the hardest one, right? The journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I was motivated to start creating content. Well, I was invited, right? So that was easy at the beginning. But when I started creating content under my own banner, it was because I saw a problem or a gap. Um, I, if somebody were to ask me, like, how do you get into this? I want to do that. Right? How do you do that? I mean, I think a lot of the one challenge that a lot of people do is they just come up with some cool stuff and then they think that that's enough, right? Oh, well, I've got a neat, I've made a monster. I've got this setting. Let me tell you about my adventure. Great. I'm sure it's cool, but I'm not, you know, I, I've got, there's plenty of those out there, right? Why would I need yours? So I think that one thing that I often do, which is again, learned from academia is you find a need. And then you match it with something you're passionate about. You have to you need both of those ingredients, I think, right? You need to find something that people would actually need or be or benefit from, not just more of the same more content. We've already got millions of adventures on DMs Guild and Drive Through and the published books. Why would I need yours? Well, maybe mine does something that they don't, right? Mine solves a problem you have or didn't realize you have. Let me tell you about the problem you've got so I could solve it for you. That sort of thing. And then you need the passion and enthusiasm about it to follow through with the project to sell it to other people, you know, honestly and stuff like that. So that's, uh, the good news is with the internet and with the marketplace as it is, that's doable because we've got platforms like drive through RPG and DMS guild and itchio and others that have lowered the bar of entry, uh, at least in the digital, uh, realm. It's still almost impossible to get your products, uh, printed, distributed and into game stores, especially now. But, uh, yeah, you can make, you can enter in that kind of lower bar now, and that's great. Yeah, the brick and mortar is that kind of next hurdle, which you're fighting a lot of already established sort of methods and systems there. So it's really hard to break into that. And I, I know there's uh, a few people who've been able to accomplish it, but I don't know many, especially in comparison to the digital only, obviously, offerings, which are plentiful online as well. And since we're in the nitty gritty and the technical stuff, if you don't mind, what in this time period since you've been creating your own content and Arcanist Press has started, do you find is the hardest? Because it seems like putting content out at a consistent pace isn't that difficult for you. So what do you find is giving you the most trouble? Well, I would say that the things that, so producing content isn't hard uh, for me, I'll admit, uh, compared to some of the other stages. Uh, my spouse is uh, art does art direction and layout, and so she handles that part. That would be impossible for me to do. Um, a lot of it is 
I think it's the promotion, right? So once it's out there, it's not your work's just beginning, right? So uh, I think one thing, another thing that's been, I think a lot of mis- pe- people make a mistake with is they have a title that they're going to release. So they talk about it. They tweet once or twice a day about it for three, two or three days before they release it. They tweet a couple times a day, they release it. They tweet a day, once a day for two or three days after that. And then like once every other week, they'll mention it. That's it. And then there's, you know, that's just not nearly enough. Right. And, you know, and uh, also tweeting it out, even if you tweet it out a hundred times a day, it doesn't matter if you've got only a few hundred followers and you've already reached those people by that point. Um, so building a, an audience, so that when you do tweet or send your newsletter out or post on Facebook or Instagram, a lot of people see it. And if you don't have a big audience, which frankly, I don't. I've got, yeah, my Twitter is big, getting big. It's 900 people or something, which is cool. But, you know, that's not – I need to go beyond that number if I'm going to make this profitable. Uh, so you got to find ways to get that material in front of eyeballs. And, uh, you, you know, because we're all small producers, you know, we don't really have big ad budgets. So we have to do it on the cheap or free. And that means connecting with people with bigger audiences. And the thing that's been hardest for me is doing all of that stuff, basically just marketing, but in a way that feels authentic, right? Because when I first came to the idea of having to do this, I was kind of all put off by it. I thought, oh, you know, that's I, maybe it was academic snobbery on my part that I thought, well, advertising is for, you know, that's smart. That's kind of smarmy and oily i didn't want to do that but i've found that if i'm super like just if i'm just naturally excited about my project because i am the things i make i get excited about i'm the kind of person that when you go out to eat and i taste something i like i want everyone to taste it I'm like oh here taste this this is really good i'm that sort of person and so that's how i'm like i am about my products i get excited about them and i want to tell you about them and i want to learn about your products and see or, or you know your games or your stories as well because that's why i got into this and that's why i've always been a game player is for that connection and i mentioned the experience stuff uh at the table i mean that's what i that's my that's my jam and so building that is uh allows me to connect with people in a way that does happen to promote my product without me feeling you know like i'm being i don't know a salesperson so that's a trait i've noticed and, and i joke about it all the time whenever somebody becomes a gm or a dm they all become missionaries of whatever that uh, role-playing system is because we all want everyone to enjoy it and that enthusiasm uh, like yourself I, I have the exact same thing with the favorite foods and bands and movies and games and etc etc which I, I think that enthusiasm is really helpful in, in what you're trying to do here i found also for those per- persons listening who have the things they wanted to try and things they wanted to create but are, are worried about it, uh, I found that just getting out there and then finding a few people who are just as excited as you, that sort of networking, that connections that you make very, very quickly, you'll find yourself being able to get onto either more panels or more interviews or more live play games or whatever it is you're trying to do just by consistently getting out there, putting yourself out there. And uh, to, to, and I've said this on the podcast before, I do this podcast because of me wanting to get more people to see and hear and buy and enjoy the things I enjoy as well. And in the process there, I've made very interesting people and talked to people who are probably way more uh, social credibility and, and, and viewership than, than, than I will ever have. Partially because I'm enthusiastic and I just put myself out there. So th- that, that ties into that as well. If you're anybody listening, uh, just put yourself out there and talk. And then eventually you'll start making the connections and the threads. And people will read your enthusiasm. People will, will read your you, how genuine you are. I think in, in marketing, I've talked to my friends who work in marketing and stuff like that. The biggest sell nowadays is genuine. And they want you to feel like there's a friend referring you. That's why there's influencer culture, right? It's, it's the idea that we've all been kind of so inundated with advertising. We know when it feels like an ad. So what's the next level? We want to hear it from somebody who we like and who we enjoy and we believe is genuine. So that's why influencers exist. And there's an argument to be made about why they can be bad for society. But still, an extension of that is when you meet people and you talk to them. If you can read how genuine their enthusiasm is or their passion is, then you want to help them out. I think that's absolutely true. And I just want to add one thing to it because I will say that one of the things that's really been – it shouldn't be surprising, I guess, but it has been. I, maybe heartening is the right word. Is that I've found that the very best way to connect with other people and to share that enthusiasm is not to necessarily to come to them immediately with what I'm enthusiastic about my stuff. It's to get enthusiastic about their stuff. Uh, so I, if when I see other creators that are producing stuff that I think is important and valuable and cool, 
I tell them and I share it on my social media and I uh, talk it up, you know, and, you know, for example, when people ask me about uh, ancestry and culture and they say, oh, this is great. You've identified this problem in Dungeons and Dragons. I often try to find a, a, an opportunity to mention, well, there are other producers, content producers who have done so as well. Grazalak's Guide to An Ancestry on DMs Guild and uh, Gabe James Games has a great solution that uses class on itch.io and there's half the you know there's the elephant and orc had a little baby and other sorts of options as well by these other creators and just by consistently supporting them they guess what they i don't have to ask them they feel naturally and authentically interested in promoting me too and so we build a community of mutual support and uh we're kind of each other's cheerleaders and it feel but in a way that feels i don't know like just friendship and uh that but i think i've probably reached more people because of that mutual support than I've in any other method because what will happen is I'll be supportive of somebody they'll retweet it or tell somebody they know and then that person who might have a much larger audience than me ends up uh, you know boosting it and that's where I get a lot of my attention uh so those are uh kind of has really helped me connect to the community and feel like I'm a part of it and then that's paid off yeah and I, I wonder if that has to do with the manner in which we play and enjoy and what our kind of thread that binds us all is because, you know, uh, I always look at things from an economic lens, blame it on education. Um, if you're in a kind of very highly competitive market space uh, in a very capitalistic society like America is, where I'm based out of, um, there's a lot of this mentality of whatever it takes to get, you know, profitability or to win. And you kind of uh, accept that that's the kind of hyper aggressive, everybody's your antagonist or more of a like, well, if you're not helping me get what I want, you have no value sort of thing. By virtue of us being role players and, and being in a game to where we share time together, usually sharing a physical space, now a virtual space together, and we're spending time exploring various different themes and characters. Everybody brings their own cre creation, which is their character or their own world, which is their homebrew or, or their, their accents or whatever it is that they're doing. It's a very, very um, personal and vulnerable place, but we always want to help. There's no winning in RPG. I mean, winning, I guess, is having a great time and enjoying the time you spend with other people. But uh, it's it's not in lieu of helping somebody or beating, uh, you know, or, or assisting somebody to have the same time. There's no trouncing your enemies and being the only victor. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the whole system is a, is, is collaborative storytelling. Or if you want to talk mechanically, you know, this is a, it's a team game, right? This is like, uh, you know, it's a like a board game where we're all it's us against the system here where you know i don't like to think of it as players versus gm i think that the gm is one of the players and the goal is that you win when everyone has a good time uh and the rules are there to make that to facilitate that uh and so that's uh as long as we all kind of realize that that's our shared goal then it can be a lot of fun and that can translate very well to um the community as well. I mean, of course, every community is made of people and people are flawed. So of course you'll have problems and we do, but I do find that this community is much more supportive and positive than academia is. I'll put it that way. Well, also, you know, the music space, I think, uh, something I also come from as well. And while everybody's totally willing to tell you like, Hey, listen to my CD and stuff like that. Uh, it's very funny in the RPG space where people literally be like, Hey, uh, how can I, oh, I have this great monster, this great idea, or Hey, here's this tip whenever, whenever you come up with a problem or an issue in your games, like we freely give out all of this information. We freely give out all this help and assistance to where in the music world, but we'll gladly give you our, our demo. We're not going to give you our riff or our great melody. We're just not like that. Uh, so, so, and I, I'm pretty sure it's not that way in the, the joke uh, comedy space or various uh, other spaces. So I think it's very interesting. Obviously there's a marketplace for creating, you know, homebrew items or homebrew content, which in case you can pay somebody for that. But as long as I've been playing this game, which is a little bit, uh, you know, less than you, but it's getting almost now nine, 10 years. Uh, how, open people are about wanting to hear uh, about your world or wanting to hear about your games and then at the drop of a dime we'll say like here's a great tip here's a great idea here's here's an adventure i, I ran just take it run with it it's, it's very impressive and very weird at the same time I, I don't expect i don't i didn't expect that when i got into this community yeah i agree i mean it's been you can it's, it, and it's i i don't know why it is i mean maybe it's that it's still a small community and compared to many other industries, maybe it's that many of us came to this community already feeling 
like this was our secret uh, uh-huh. enclave, you know? Uh, and so we kind of, you know, it's that like secret code when we see somebody out in public that's got like a role-playing game related. It's a cult, Eugene. Truth. Just say it. Come out and say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I wouldn't use that word, but um, uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, that, so that's fun. I mean, you just kind of like it's like a shared, it's a shared fandom in a way, but it's also creative and it's also collaborative, and that makes it a different than some other uh, sorts of uh, fandoms. So yeah, it's been wonderful. I mean, I've been very, uh, I've managed to be very fortunate. I mean, again, to mention, I mean, yes, yes. Unfortunately, there are negative aspects, and not just a few. I mean, I know that lately there's been. It seems like every time I see something that is heartening on the uh, on the social media, there's someone there who's going to try to knock it down. You know, there's this wonderful uh, combat wheelchair, uh, free, uh, uh, optional little rule system that somebody put out on Twitter, and you know, it's super cool, neat idea. Uh, and of course, there's always people there to tell uh, them that they're a horrible person for trying to create D content that they, this person didn't like that's always a bit disappointing but it's you know we still have work to do is what i'm getting at but it's still a pretty good community it's actually funny you mentioned that because that's one of the people who i follow uh the dislocating gym is uh at mustangs art for those of you who want to find her on twitter sarah she i i, I noticed when she dropped that and it was such a surprise to me how vehemently opposed some people were to the idea of, of implementing like you mentioned the free product um she was also a published it, it's not like she was just d- doing this from uh, a place of like uh amateurism she's a published uh, rpg content creator who came up with a great supplement which you can add to your game to make people feel more uh, included especially those because she's a dis- disability uh, advocate so I, I was shocked just as you were when i when i saw sarah drop that and then people get upset about it especially considering the fact that we live in play in fantastical or science fiction based worlds where that's not an obstacle. Anything can be waved away with a magic wand or a spell or a mechanical implant or something like that. Oh, absolutely. I mean that it's been, yeah, I had similar responses to ancestry and culture because in ancestry and culture in in my book, I allow for rules. I give a mechanic that allows two individuals of different ancestries to have offspring. And so you can make your character as having like I'm a you know the I have a parent one parent's a, an elf and one parent's an orc or one parent's a gnome and one's a halfling or whatever and <clears throat> I had quite a few people tell try to point out how that's not biologically realistic or something uh, and I thought really do we do we do we ask how it is that the red dragon produces fire so hot it can melt other f- flesh but doesn't melt its own flesh right we don't ask that question there's all kinds of things that are obviously not biologically possible in dungeons and dragons and this is the one you're gonna die the hill you're gonna die on why why this hill why the one that promotes you know uh, racial diversity and allows for characters of mixed heritage why that one and not all these others it's hard not to read ill intent into that uh though i try not to and I try to look on the positive side and like, like every time I've gone to a convention and I, I tend to help out a lot at like AL Adventures League uh, stuff at my local conventions or helping out with guys who I are helping run panels with. I'll run games after the panels to introduce people in D and D and stuff like that. I see so much more diversity in race and diversity in age and sex and sexual orientation and also in, you know, disability. And I'm, I'm so happy to see how this game is growing. And, and for the vast majority of what I see, obviously you can find anything on, on the internet because it is a giant open free kind of cesspool at times. Uh, what I see in person is positivity. And I, I think the great, the game benefits with that. And then when what we lack, we are quick to uh, change or find a way to rectify. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the word positivity, I really think if I had to pick one or two words to describe what the theme is, the mood of let's say of our titles it's going to be something like that positivity hope community and so if you go and look at ancestry and culture there are two adventures in the back they're designed as all ages for kids and families sorts of adventures not all our content is that way but that definitely illustrates communities coming together uh it's about hope and diversity and that's really a theme of our work Uh, so our the upcoming thing the next thing we're going to work on is a superhero game 
and it's called Excelsior. And really, that idea of kind of inspiring hope is going to be, that's like our, our North Star, if you will. That's like one of our guiding principles. Because uh, I think that's what I know that honestly, in, in reflecting, reflecting upon it, why I've been such a fan of fantasy and science fiction for so long, it's because that's what it gives me. It feeds my soul, right? In dark times to imagine a better worlds, so imagine worlds that are uh, in which we can feel hope. And so that's, you know, that's why uh, I do this in a lot of ways is for to kind of grow and cultivate that. And that's definitely going to be uh, on display in our work in the future too. Speaking of how much of that can you talk about? How much of this is, you know, you can tell us about or is in the working stage that you're willing to disclose and how much is not? You mentioned all the titles you guys already have uh, working on. Uh, what are we looking for next from Arcanist Press? Well, so the Ancestry and Culture line has uh, currently has four or five titles out. It's got one that has the core rules and just the like the player's handbook basic uh ancestries or races if you will and then there's two expansions custom ancestries and cultures more ancestries and cultures that have 126 uh options ancestries and cultures that are all uh, based on fantasy character or types and monsters and whatnot uh but that's drive through rpg so it's not the official wizards content we've got three more titles in process one called volo's guide to ancestries and cultures another that's ancestries and cultures of eberron and then one of Ra uh, ravenloft and those are going to have the Kind of the peoples of those uh settings specifically so and that will be on dm's guild because that's the only place you can put that kind of intellectual property out from from wizards of the coast you know things like playable uh you know a playable flump <laughs> if you want to a playable myconid a playable but also things like you know your mountain dwarves and forest gnomes that aren't officially allowed outside of dm's guild uh that's coming soon and we're working with Lots of people. I've got. A, I'm happy to report that we have uh, a preface. Will be uh, is written and will be appearing to Volo's Guide to Ancestries and Cultures by Ed Greenwood, the creator of the Forgotten Realms. Uh, so that's kind of exciting. And then, um, and it's a really, really great and moving preface. Actually, I can't wait to share it. But um, then, beyond those releases, we'll, we're starting a second line, and that line is called Excelsior. And this is a fifth edition rule set. So using the Open Gaming license. But it's superhero, modern, 21st century Earth superhero. So think if I can cite some inspiration. So Marvel Cinematic Universe is a big inspiration. I myself have always been a comic fan. I'm not uh, quite as diehard lore hound as, uh, about comics as I am about D&D, but it's always been a part of my life. And we've got some really, we've got some, pro, you know, members of professionals from the comic industry involved in the creation of this as well. Uh, so we haven't decided, we're still considering a couple options on whether we're going to kickstart it or partner with somebody or what, but that's, I mean, it's a complete game. So that would be, the model is, if you're familiar with this, is Esper Genesis is an inspiration. Uh, the Esper Genesis is a, is a product from a different company called Alligator Alley Entertainment. And it's a science fiction take on the fifth edition rules. Uh, and it's three, it's got there, you know, they will have had three books out. They're versions of the player's handbook, DM's guide and monster manual. So we have all of that content ready to go too. And we're in the middle of getting art right now. And then we'll decide on how to distribute it come late fall or winter. Uh, but that's super exciting. We've done some play testing for that too. And that I really am excited to share that because I really think it leans into that feeling of hope, right? I mean, this is, these are, adventures where you're the superhero i know a lot of ways dnd is like fantasy superheroes but this really leans into that i don't know part of our culture the new genre that doesn't really have a game like fifth edition for uh, for it there's a bunch of great superhero games but they're all kind of older systems uh so i'm looking forward to filling that gap i think yeah, absolutely. And there's certainly a market for it, especially as superhero genre, quote unquote. Even if we can call it a genre, I think it's just a, a way of making movies now. Uh, it's been so immersed in who we are and what we do. And I, I'll make an argument that it's our uh, modern in mythology, but that's, you know, uh, may, may, maybe a more philosophical debate for, for another time. <laughs> but um, so I wanted to add, and we kind of uh, rushed past it, and I, I don't mind this. When you guys started Arcanist Press, um, the ultimate end goal, what is Arcanist Press for you? Because I know you have a, a day job. I know you have works that you want to do. Do you want to eventually transition and segue over? Or is this just something to where like you feel a need or you have an idea that comes to you and you want to create it? Well, of course, getting compensated for it as you desire. 
Yeah, that's a question that I talk with my spouse about pretty regularly. And as of now, uh, and and it has been for a while now. I think our attitude is that we want to make it a, a you know a living gr- uh, and growing business. We want to uh, put out content regularly and be a part of this industry and hobby that we both love so much for the foreseeable future. Now, how, what exactly that will look like could change. Um, I don't plan on quitting my day job though, because though I love the game industry and and have met many wonderful people there, I also recognize that it is more uh, unstable. I'm in a tenured professor uh, at a university, so I have um, about as good a job security as you can get. I'm very privileged and fortunate in that regard. So uh, I'm not going to give up that kind of stability. I have children. Uh, health insurance reasons, et cetera, I'll be staying at the day job. Uh, this is a job I do in my free time. Uh, and so that's one reason why my spouse has to do a lot of the heavy lifting. I write the words and then she turns them into actual PDFs, which is, there's a lot that goes into that editing, layout, art, publishing. Uh, so that's, that's the plan. We want to keep putting out good content. We're going to develop the second line. Our ancestry and culture line will keep, it will stay alive. And uh, we'll see if that second line does as well as we think it might. That will definitely take us into the next year or two. And uh, who knows where we'll go from there. And definitely will, I will certainly be here kind of uh, ever patient to see what you do, especially considering the reputation you've already garnered from the releases of the products you have made so far. Um, I appreciate you. I thank you for, for coming out here. Eugene, if anybody has uh, any questions or they want to follow you or Arcanist Press, what's the best means to do that? So uh, I'm most commonly found on Twitter, at Arcanist Press. That's A-R-C-A-N-I-S-T Press. And also that address at uh, on the web, ArcanistPress.com. What do you know? Facebook, Arcanist Press. Instagram, Arcanist Press. Although Twitter is most commonly used. You can also email me at ArcanistPress at gmail.com. Uh, I would love to hear from people. And if you'd like to contact me, my personal Twitter is at classy underscore Don. That's D-O-N. The email is myRPGpodcast at gmail.com. And obviously you can listen to us anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, you name it. Aside from that, thank you for listening, and I'll see you at the table. Mm-hmm.